Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Jay Young, uh, Executive Director of Corporate Strategy at Trinity Industries here in Dallas and a member of the Board of Directors of the World Affairs Council. We're very pleased you're here tonight and pleased to welcome Jason Matthew. Matthew's with us today, to uh, whom we'll return to in just a minute. But first, we'd like to thank the schools in attendance that are here tonight as part of our international education program, Corsicana High School and the Texas Academy of Biomedical Sciences. Welcome to you all. We're glad you're here. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you of some upcoming events. On June 13, the Ambassador of Indonesia to the United States, His Excellency Dino Pate Dajjal, uh, will be here and to discuss the economic and political prospects of Indonesia. And on June 17th, you can learn more about the war within the war in Afghanistan with associate editor of the Washington Post, Rajiv Chandraskaran, who I met uh, two years ago when we had him for our military history seminar at the University of North Texas. And he is uh, he's quite good, so I highly recommend coming to see him if you can. For information on these uh, and other council events, please visit our website at www.dfwworld.org. And as Jim Falk, who I'm substituting for tonight, and who's much more suave and debonair than yours truly, as he always says, please remember to turn on your AT&T phone as you leave today's event. <laughs> so as I think everybody who's at least here tonight probably has some appreciation, uh, John Le Carre, John Buchan, Graham Greene, Somerset Maugham, Ian Fleming, Charles McCarry, and others, all served as intelligence officers before becoming full-time authors. We have a long tradition here in the West uh, of having intelligence officers move into the world of fiction after they have left often uh, distinguished careers in the clandestine services of certainly the British and American uh, intelligence services. So although Jason Matthews moved from a 33-year veteran, as a 33-year veteran of the CIA's National Clandestine Service to novelist is not unparalleled, he is certainly in very good company. During his tenure as a covert CIA uh, operative, which included collecting national security intelligence, recruiting spies, and running secret operations in multiple overseas locations, Jason acquired a solid base of knowledge on a variety of different events, which I'm sure he will discuss and form the basis of his uh, new novel. Now he's retired and living in Southern California, and he's used that to begin to, that knowledge base to help inform the novels that he's beginning, that he's writing. Though it's nonfiction, uh, though it is not nonfiction, it's Red Sparrow's Matthew Dibon's espionage thriller is written with a depth of knowledge and level of intrigue rarely found in such books. Red Sparrow highlights the ever-changing contemporary relationship between the Rus Russia and the United States in a highly exciting story that takes place across the world. Please join me in welcoming Jason Matthews to Dallas. Thank you, Jay. Good evening, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. My first time in Dallas. Um, I was debating about basically what I should say, how, what I should explain about the agency and about my career. 
um, and about the book. Um, and most people ask, uh, what is it that the CIA does? <laughs> and I'd have to answer, I have no idea. <laughs> Actually, a, a, quick, a quick little introduction. The CIA has four directorates, four main parts. Uh, it's the Directorate of Intelligence, uh, Directorate of Science and Technology, Directorate of Administration, and the Directorate of Op the old Directorate of Operations, now called the Clandest National Clandestine Service. The Director of the National Clandestine Service, the DNCIS, or as he is referred to less than charitably, the Dinkus. <laughs> Is, 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 the, is the officer who um, basically directs all overseas operational uh, activity. Um, perhaps a little lexicon uh, to start with. Um, agency officers are called either case officers or operations officers or simply officers. The foreigners that we search out to recruit to give us intelligence are called agents. The FBI has special agents. The IRS, as we have been hearing the last couple of days, <laughs> have agents. Customs and Border and Protection have agents. But in, uh, in CIA lexicon, the agent is the foreigner who we find to, to, to help us uh, collect intelligence. What is espionage? That's, that's always asked uh, of us a lot. Espionage, uh, put sort of simply, is uh, undetectably stealing secrets. That's what we do. As a case officer overseas, we undetectably steal secrets. And the undetectably part is as important as the, as the theft of the secrets, because if we steal a secret and the opposition knows that we have stole it, they will change the code, they will change the policy, they will change the, the order of battle, whatever. So your secrets have to stay stolen, but undetectable. Um, it is a lot like clandestine journalism. Uh, that's another metaphor we use. Uh, you're looking for a story. You're looking for a source. You're looking to get the source to tell you details. You protect your source to the nth degree. And then you file your story, clandestine journalism. Um, Espionage has been called the second oldest profession in the world. Uh, we case officers also say that what it has in common with the oldest profession in the world is that some, someday, some, somehow, someone's going to get it in the end. <laughs> the world of secrets and stealing secrets is, um, is, is very layered. I'll give you an example. If, um, if we see the New York Times bureau chief in Moscow go to the Russian foreign ministry and talk to Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, and ask him, what is Russia's current energy policy? Foreign Minister Lavrov will pump up and say, well, we are a member of the community of nations, and Russia guarantees that we will provide uh, abundant and inexpensive natural gas and oil to our European brothers and sisters. That's public policy. The New York Times guys go, go out, they go back, they file the, the file the report and the story, and it comes out in the paper the next day or the next, next week. The next day, US Secretary of State John Kerry goes to the foreign ministry, the Soviet foreign ministry, during a visit to Moscow, and asks uh, foreign, foreign Minister Lavrov, what is your energy policy, please? 
and he says, uh, we will provide energy to Eastern, uh, to Eastern Europe, uh, and to the Baltics, and to Western Europe on the condition that you do not establish missile defense sites in Poland and uh, the Czech Republic. That's called bilateral policy. That night, behind the soccer stadium at midnight, someone like uh, Jason is meeting Foreign Minister Lavrov's personal secretary, and he's hearing that actually the Soviet, the Kremlin's plans and intentions are to sell the bulk of their energy to China, thus trying to drive a wedge in Western Europe and, and, and create more, um, more trouble. That's a state secret. That's a secret that is stolen and that must remain a secret forever. Um, how is it that Jason can find this secretary to, to meet him behind the soccer stadium at midnight. Well, uh, we have what we call a recruitment cycle. We spot and we assess and we develop and we recruit. And in some cases, at, at the end of a, of a relationship, we terminate a relationship. We don't terminate the individual. <laughs> um, and it, it, is, it, is a, it is a human function. It is developing a bond of trust. And it is uh, assessing a person's motivations it's assessing what, what makes a person tick. Uh, it's as elemental as uh, courtship. It's as elemental as uh, developing a friendship. Um, but it is a, a deadly serious game. Um, recruiting someone, recruiting a foreigner. I, I, used, I used Russia as sort of a, 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 delect, a delectable opponent because there's, there's still quite an opponent on the world stage. But recruiting. Um, Recruiting a Russian to spy for Washington um, in the Cold War was a mortal danger. Um, the actuarial tables of the, uh, of the survival rate for a Russian during the Cold War spying for the West against his own country was 18 months. They survived 18 months. There was a fellow, maybe some of you have heard his name, um, Oleg Penkovsky, who was a GRU, which is a Russian military intelligence colonel who was passing secrets to President John F. Kennedy, not directly, but uh, and helped avert war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. When he was eventually caught, the Russians fed him alive, feet first, into a crematorium oven. And they filmed it and showed it at military academies later as a disincentive for other people to, uh, to spy. To accept a recruitment pitch from us any foreigner actually, frankly, has to be nuts. You're asking them to break the laws of their country. You're asking them to commit treason. You're asking them to guarantee that they will not be found out exposed by a leak from a politician in Washington or by a mole like Rick Ames or Robert Hansen in Washington or by case officer error or being discovered by the counterintelligence organs in your own country. It's a huge leap. And why do people in their right minds accept recruitment pitches? Because it is so counterintuitive. It is so anti-self-preservation. But year after year, multiple times during the year around the world, brave uh, foreigners accept recruitment pitches. A, CIA case officer assesses 
an individual's motivations, vulnerabilities, um, inclinations, wants, needs, and desires. And as they're developing this human interaction, this developmental process, becoming best friends, because you can't fake it. You've got to actually like the person you're recruiting. Um, we try to identify what we've, we've basically called the four basic human motivators, which are described by the acronym M-I-C-E, MICE. Um, it stands for money, ideology, conscience, and ego. We all have a collection of those motivators uh, in all of us, and what we try to do is quantify and catalog the MICE quotient um, in our recruitment targets. Our uh, brothers and sisters in military intelligence often want to put an S on the back of mice for sex, sexual entrapment, etc. Of course, a lot of guys in the military intelligence don't realize that mice is already the plural form of the word. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's a dangerous joke in, in Texas, I know. Um, but Western, Western uh, intelligence services generally, characteristically, do not use sexual entrapment. In, in the book, Red Sparrow refers to the courtesan school, which was basically run during the Cold War in the 60s and 70s, used for what they call sexpionage, entrapping vulnerable men and women uh, with, with, trap, with uh, honey traps, sexual, uh, sexual traps, uh, to get either information or get them into a blackmailable situation. Western services didn't usually use sex as a recruitment tool because the, uh, the agent who was recruited under coercion with a, a, a whiff of blackmail uh, is untrustworthy, he's resentful, he, he's brooding, and he might, uh, he might quit or he might start giving you disinformation. So in the West, we leave that alone, but Russia infamously has used, um, has used uh, sexual entrapment uh, quite often. Um, the agent who is motivated mostly by money, the venal agent, is basically pretty much a black and white character. We, you know why he's doing it. I steal secrets, you pay me money. One time we had a, uh, we had a, a walk-in into an embassy. Uh, a, a, a young North African um, aircraft mechanic from a, uh, a military airfield in North Africa had uh, came to us and, and announced that the export model of the MiG-23, a swept-wing fighter, had just been delivered to his country. And during the back and forth and the back and forth, I'm sure Jay and Laurie remember this, every new piece of Russian equipment, they call it Sovmat, Soviet materiel, uh, was a, a huge target for us. We wanted to understand it. We wanted to understand the avionics and the, the thrust nozzles and the wing roots and the armor rail. So this little guy came, came up and he said, I will take pictures of the MiG-23, the new MiG-23, um, and you pay me per frame. Okay, we gave him an infrared film camera, and back he went to his country and to the airfield, and you can picture an African, African midnight moon rising up over the desert with a dog barking in the background, and here's Chummy crawling all over the airframe. He's taking pictures in the nozzle. He's climbing up and taking pictures of the dials, and uh, he says, the more pictures I take, Vino, greed, money. The more pictures I take, the more I'll get paid. So he, uh, he shinnies out onto the nose 
of the MIG, and if you picture a shark nose with a, a, a needle coming out the front, which is called a pitot tube, it's hollow and it measures airspeed. So Chummy was on the nose shooting through the, uh, through the windshield, the perspex, uh, at the ejection seat. And in the dew, the dew wet fabric of or the metal of the aircraft, he started sliding backwards. And he slid backwards, backwards, backwards. He bounced off the pitot tube and landed on his butt on the tarmac. He looked up, and in the moonlight, the, the tube was bent at a 20-degree angle. <laughs> so he said to himself, I'm not going to get paid. <laughs> That's all he worried, worried about. He wasn't worried about leaving no trace or his own personal safety. He wanted his money. So what he did is he walked down the flight line and bent the tubes <laughs> of all the, all the other aircraft. There, there were six of them. He got back to, uh, to our, our, our station, our office, and he showed us the, showed us the pictures. And we, we paid him for the, the pictures of use, but uh, we, we obviously we, we no longer had a source at that airfield. <laughs> the, uh, the agent who is motivated by ideology, or perhaps more precisely by the lack or the, the loss of ideology, was a very, it's a very, very strong motivator. Um, you have to be careful because the person who has been mistreated by his system, or his boss has withheld a promotion, or he, um, he, he is sick and tired of the excesses of the old Soviet Union, or of the regime in Burma, or of the regime in North, uh, North Korea, or um, he just can't, can't do it anymore. Uh, it's a little bit dangerous as an asset because he has a, a banner to wave. He's got, he's got a, a flag to fly. Um, in the 1960s, a, a GRU uh, colonel, who eventually became a general, um, was posted to New York, to the UN. A GRU, once again, is Russian military intelligence. His five-year-old son got deathly ill, and an implacable Moscow denied him permission to take the young son to a doctor, and the, the young kid tragically died. From that moment, this very, very loyal and very accomplished Russian military intelligence officer had lost his, his, his loyalty to the, to the Kremlin. His heart hardened, and it took him a little bit a while, but he became uh, one of the most valuable uh, assets uh, ever to work for the CIA. His name was Dmitry Polyakov. He, he survived his 16 or 17 years of spying for CIA and was in his eighth year of retirement when Rick Ames passed his name along with others to the Russians. They invited General, then General Polyakov, back to the, the center, uh, the KGB headquarters, and uh, intercepted him in the, in, the, in the lobby and took him to a side room. Trial, execution, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the loss of ideology we look for, uh, and it's, very, it's a very interesting motivator. Um, conscience is also an interesting motivator. A lot of times in, in, during the Cold War, a Russian would come up and say, uh, I can no longer continue to do what I've been doing. Or I've driven a tank in Tiananmen Square and I can't, I can't sleep at night. Or um, I am an Iranian nuclear scientist. I've been educated in the West. Uh, I'm a man of erudition, I'm a man of letters, and I'm realizing what a nuclear Iran would mean, not only for the region, but for the world. So I cannot let this, in my good conscience, continue. So um, 
I'm bringing you secrets from the underground centrifuge halls in the Tants in central Iran. It happens that quickly, and it happens that decisively. You have to be careful of the man or woman who has lost or has, has basically pursued by his conscience sometimes does, does not pay enough attention to their own personal safety. It takes a lot of risks. And finally, the agent, the prospective agent who is motivated by ego, it's one of my favorites, uh, when, you, uh, when you start um, complimenting a person, when you start stroking their ego, uh, the one thing is that you cannot stop. But uh, a lot of our targets, a lot of the people who have access to secrets that we need, which are basically the whole, the whole game is to steal the secrets that U.S. policymakers need to formulate cogent U.S. policy. So uh, I, I, was, I, I, I had recruited a... Uh, I had recruited a hard target, meaning coming from one of the totalitarian states. He had spectacularly, potentially spectacular intelligence. But our developmental had been very personal, and we were very close personal friends. Um, and he used to tell me, I am basically meeting with you at grave danger to myself because you are my, you are my friend. I will not talk to Washington. I will not share what I'm, I'm sharing with you to people in, uh, in Washington because I'm not doing it for that reason. I said, all right, okay. So we had our conversation, conversation in the safe house and went away. The next time I, I came to him, I said, I have, an, I have a confession to make. I hope you're not going to be angry with me. Those little tidbits during our conversation last time, I wrote them up anonymously. I didn't say who, 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 who wrote them. Who, who told me them, but I wrote them up and I reported them back to Washington and they went straight from Langley to the National Security Council and straight from the NSC to the Oval Office. They loved it. Total lie. I had done nothing of this. But this little guy who had suffered in cultural revolutions and he'd been flogged publicly in the village and he'd been this and that and his kids were ripped from his arms and sent away, uh, all of a sudden, uh, his ego started flowering. He had uh, something now to do. Someone now depended on him. And the notion of his anonymity, uh, I, I, made up, I made up a code name. I said, oh, the White House knows you as, you know, as, as dynamite. And he puffed up. He goes, you think, you think that last report was good? How about this? And all of a sudden, it started rolling downhill. This guy was convinced that through his good friend, he was personally spying for Jimmy Carter. God help him. <laughs> at, the, at the end of my career, 33 years, and my, my wife was also in the agency, and we raised two daughters and lived all over the, all over the world. Um, at the end of my career, in retirement, partially for therapy, but partially because, um, because the historiography of espionage is so fascinating. The stories are, are so fundamental and elemental. Uh, it's hu the human condition, it's betrayal, it's trust. It is taking moral risk. It is dedicating oneself. It is dedicating the US case officers, dedicate themselves to the safety of their assets. Um, and 
I've, re I've read a lot of, of espionage thrillers. I, I admire all the uh, authors that uh, Jay mentioned uh, in his introduction. Um, but unless they have actually been involved in intelligence, like Le Carre or uh, Ian Fleming, by the way, Ian Fleming's From Russia with Love, everybody thinks he's sort of a little, little fruity and little, you know, bub bubblegum kind of writer. He's a master storyteller, and that, uh, that book is a accurate description of what we used to call an exfiltration operation, getting an agent out of a country and out of harm's way. From Russia with Love is, is very good. Um, in any case, um, espionage is, um, is all about the human condition. Uh, it's about the great game. Uh, there's a lot of debating now about the new Cold War. What is Vladimir Putin doing? Why is he using, instead of the Politburo, now it's natural gas and pipelines and oil. Um, what are China's plans for hegemony in the Pacific? Uh, what, is, what is that little toadstool in North Korea going to do next? <laughs> These are secrets that desperately need stealing uh, to, to, to basically safeguard the West, more, more importantly, um, our, uh, our government. And um, it's one of the things that I tried to put into Red Sparrow, which was approved, every comma, by CIA Publication Review Board. But I tried to put in real-life tradecraft, because a lot of current thrillers have it that there's a retired CIA guy. Um, the day after he retires, the black limousine is outside his, outside his door, and his former colleagues are trying to knock him off. And he's got 12 hours to find the briefcase nuke in New York. This is, this, is, this is more a parable of the Cold War, of the interchange, interplay between uh, intelligence officers on both sides. Um, and uh, I had a lot, of, a lot of fun reading it. Um, I'm mindful of the, of the, of the time. Uh, I'd love to take any questions anyone has. And there's no, no limit to questions. Please. Um, I, I personally think that's a good move. I think that the drone program, obviously, in all its iterations, uh, is essentially military in its nature. And in fact, the entire global war on terror um, has been a, a, tr a tremendous drain of resources and psychic energy in the whole government, military, and the intelligence service. But for a rather small organization such as CIA, I personally believe, old retired guy's viewpoint, that we should focus on stealing secrets. The military are very good flying drones. And that's basically what's the bridge like over the next hill. What, what we don't have these days, because we have been drawn away in the global war on terror, is we don't have a, a clear picture of what's happening in Syria. Or what does really the Arab Spring mean? Or um, what's happening in oil-rich Venezuela now that uh, Hugo Chavez is gone? And what, what is the 5 and the 10 and the 15, the real secrets that need stealing in the capital cities of the world, not on hilltops in Afghanistan? My personal opinion. Yes, sir. that it is an accurate secret it, it, and that it really is actionable rather than just more information? Uh, excellent question. It's the whole, it's the whole issue of validating uh, an asset and validating, corroborating his, um, his, his information. Uh, 
you have to you have to extend you have to take a reach if someone volunteers and says i have for instance information about radical islam in chechnya you have to get send young ryan fogel perhaps out to meet the fellow with the 50% expectation that it's an ambush that it's a setup but if this if they had met and the guy had started giving actionable intelligence that would be step 1 in establishing his bona fides so it is a critical, critical uh, uh, issue. Could you please describe a safe house? And did you have just one agent at a time, or did you have many agents? Uh, um, it, you could picture a safe house if you picture your son and daughter's dorm room. It's got college. It's <laughs> no. It, they're usually very small, very anonymous, one bedroom, the broken table, nothing in the refrigerator. It's just some place to go to get out of, off the street, because in, especially in a very tough environment, operational environments, which we call denied area environments, if American intelligence officer Jason is seen with Russian General Polyakov, he's, he's dead, he's gone. So you have to stay off the street. I mean, tradecraft, a fancy word for skulking, for hiding. Um, and a, an, an average case officer could have anywhere between five and a dozen assets that he has to go and uh, has to handle. And you have to plan surveillance detection runs and plan requirements and write up intelligence. It's, it's like a journalist who has a journalist here in Dallas on the city beat, he, how, many, how many sources does he have? He's got, he's got a city councilman, and he's got a police guy, and he's got some. You have as many as you can develop. Yeah. Yes, yes, ma'am. Thank you. Um, I'd like to know what motivated you to join the CIA, and also what, uh, in your background, kind of qualified you to join the CIA? Two questions. Yeah. You're welcome. Uh, I, jo I joined the agency in 1976, uh, so the world was a lot different then. Uh, you know, the, the enemies, the opposition was very, very black and white. Um, and I, I went to Washington right out of graduate school. I, had, I got a master's degree in journalism, um, and I thought I'd go to Washington and try to find a writing job. I thought I'd be writing copy for the National Forest Park Service. I, I didn't know. <laughs> One of many, many interviews I had in Washington was with, uh, with the, the agency. And at the time, I, I, I'm from a Greek-American family. I spoke Greek, and uh, they liked that. And I could pass the polygraph. I wasn't, uh, I have never been convicted of a felony. You notice I've never been convicted of one. <laughs> I, I'm kidding. I passed the polygraph. I passed the, so, you know, I, I joined as a relatively young 23, 24-year-old. Uh, 33 years, years later, I woke up and this happened. <laughs> yes, sir, in the back. Uh, Russia is an oligarchy. Does the U.S. government believe that Putin is really in charge, or is he a front man for all the business leaders? That's an excellent question. I, I think there's, there, there are a lot of variations and a lot of sort of uh, analytic, analytical views of what's happening in Russia now. Um, it's a fact that the entire Russian government at all levels is peppered by, by four former KGB officers, Putin's uh, old colleagues from the Leningrad times, St. Petersburg times. Um, I believe that they think that um, 
Putin was rather an indifferent KGB officer when he was one in communist East Germany in Dresden. Um, and there's great debate about what he wants for Russia. He himself had said that the greatest uh, disaster, the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So, you know, he's pining for the old, the old days, but not the old days as we all know it. He wants Russia to, to, to maintain its, its, uh, its strength. He wants uh, outsiders to be uh, fearful of Russia. He, um, the Russian xenophobia is running, running wild. Um, dissent is disloyalty. So any oligarch or business guy who, who, who talks uh, against him, uh, either sipping tea in London with uh, you know polonium 210 in it, or uh, is is in prison for tax tax frauds. Uh, I don't mean to draw any parallels to using the sort of tax investigations uh, against enemies. <laughs> and in the U.S. government. I'm sure there are many, many views, as there are in Western Europe. Russia's not that bad. Russia's as bad. It's one of those things that's a changing target. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. What characteristics are, do they have any sort of general characteristics that these case officers uh, share, I mean, in order to do this kind of work? Um, what would they look for in, in people? Um, I was speaking to some of the students, uh, usually sort of the, uh, the snapshot that the CIA recruiters are looking for um, are people who are a little bit older than I was when I entered. They want people between the ages of uh, 20, 25, 27, and 35. People with experience, for instance, in international banking or software or cybersecurity. Um, a far cry from the, the Ivy League liberal arts graduate that they recruited in the 50s and 60s and 70s. In fact, the Russians used to buy all the yearbooks of all the Ivy League schools and zip out the class pictures of all the seniors, confident that between 20 and 30 percent of them would event eventually end up in the agency. And they were right. They were right. So these days, you, you, have to, you have to be a, a lot more you know, mechanically savvy and it, it, inter, you know, inter, inter, internet and blogosphere uh, adept. Um, they absolutely demand critical, high fluency in a critical language, Russian, Mandarin, uh, Arabic. Um, it's a lot harder, I believe. They're looking for a different kind of person. And, I, and there's also psychological assessments after you sort of pass through one or two or three gates. Um, uh, CIA psychologists are, uh, are, are something to behold. Uh, I, I, have, I have no idea exactly what they're looking for. I have no idea how they assess me, for instance, you know, sociopath with a bipolar vibe. I have, <laughs> I have no idea. Yes, sir. I have uh, two questions for you. Could you say what class or what year you were at the farm? At the farm? At the farm. You, I, you came in in 76. Yeah, I entered, I entered in 76. And you, the usual pipeline, the training pipeline, is about 24, 24 months. Uh-huh. So were you there like 78, 79? Um, more like 77. You were probably one of my students. <laughs> you were probably one of my students. You and Robert Baer, as I remember. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. yeah. My, uh, my uh, I did my not second question. I did not start that fire in yeah. the dorm. 
my second question is, did you submit the, your novel to the re review board? Yes, I did. You did have to. Absolutely. Every even though, Even that it was a novel? Especially. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Is, has China finished uh, sucking out, out of us all our secrets? And what are we doing about it? Uh, the answer is no, and the second part is scratching our heads. Uh, there, there were, there were. I was, I was familiar with uh, with some operational targeting on the west coast of the United States, which we do in concert with the bureau because the bureau has the lead in, domestically. But there were something like 300 students at Caltech alone from China all sponsored by Institute 439 or Institute 760C, who are studying everything from uh, cybersecurity to uh, atomic weapons design. And in two or three or four years, they'd go back to the Institute with everything in their heads. And they would, you know, they would write dissertations that the Caltech faculty uh, you know, were amazed at. So it's a, con it's a constant outflow, constant outflow. Yeah, that's it's pretty hard. Did you know uh, Oleg Kalugin? Did you work with him? And do you have the movie rights for your book uh, already gone? <laughs> <laughs> I never met. I never met General Kalugin. I've read uh, two or three books of his. Um, uh, he was a fascinating character. One of the only uh, only examples of someone who basically um, openly resigned and. Uh, and, and retired, right, yeah. He was a protege of uh, Yuri Andropov. So when Andropov uh, kicked the bucket, he had to, he got squeezed out. He, I think he's still on the, on the circuit and he's quite, a, he's quite a source, yeah. Yes, sir. Secondly, who do you think um, that you can talk about was the most uh, valuable uh, spy for us uh, and what information they gave us? Hmm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm asked that question a lot. What's the most dangerous thing you ever did? Uh, I say driving on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> the life in general is unlike how Hollywood would depict it. Um, it's relatively slow paced. There's a lot of research and a lot of analysis, a lot of writing back and forth to headquarters, a lot of waiting for someone to show up, a lot of attending, a lot of um, cocktail parties, missing the person you're trying to bump, m missing it. It's very slow paced, very sometimes uh, very frustrating. Um, every once in a while, however, um, I was I was in a uh, uh, Eastern Mediterranean country, and we had a liaison relations with the, the local police. They were terrific guys, real, real warriors. And they called me up one night and they said they had just popped a, a terrorist safe house and they found a hit list with my name on it. So, uh, okay, headquarters had conniption fits and I uh, was allowed to stay, but I had to be very careful. And um, we would get in the car in the morning and we had two little girls, four and six or four and seven and the, the gate guard would, would be passing a long-handled mirror under the car, and the girls would ask, what, what's that for? And uh, my wife, Suzanne, would say, it's so we wouldn't run over the stray kittens under the car. 
they were looking for, you know, for limpets. Um, and then you drop them off at kindergarten, which is the one place at the one time you could not vary your movements and your patterns, which is one of the, the best ways to safeguard oneself. Vary your patterns, vary your roots. But every morning at the kindergarten at 8 o'clock, we kept the motor running and watching the mirrors as the little girls b bounced in with their Hello Kitty lunch boxes. It's sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a little schizophrenic. You know, you, you're looking for the car behind you, and uh, they don't like the juice box they're given. Well, in, in the context, the most, most valuable agent, in the context of the Cold War and of nuclear deterrence and things, you'd have to put the, the, the famous Russian sources at, near the top of the list. The, the fellow Penkovsky who averted war during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, this General Polyakov who basically told us what the Russians intended to do in the Folda Gap in case of World War III, um, there was an aircraft engineer named Adolf Tolkachev. All these guys were betrayed by Rick Ames, who gave us, who gave us such voluminous secrets that uh, it was reckoned he saved the U.S. Air Force billions of dollars in research and development. Uh, he was caught, tried, and executed. Um, I imagine there are some super agents out there that even eclipse these famous cases, but they're, prob they're compartmented, and I, I was never aware of them. And I'm assuming they're out there. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. To get the education and learn how we do everything, and that they are going to go back to their countries. Why do we allow them to come here and take up spots that our children then don't get? And we know they're going to go back to their country. Why do we, why do we allow that to happen? You have my vote as new Secretary of State. <laughs> Um, give, you know, send us your tired huddle masses. The United States has always been w welcoming and, and, and liberal. We do. We do that, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the one little sliver possibly of advantage is that of 300 students in Caltech, maybe one doesn't want to leave after four years. And then you have money, ideology, conscience, and ego to work on. But it's, it's pretty thin soup. Ma'am? Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, when you were in these opposition countries, were you under different identities, or did they know who you were and you were being followed? Uh, you, uh, agency officers usually operate um, as diplomats out of U.S. embassies in, in, in the various capitals. Uh, eight hours a day, we're stamping visas, or we're writing economic cables for the State Department or we're going to meetings with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov to talk about energy things, and then after dark, we start, we start skulking around. <laughs> yes, sir. So we hear so much about technology and how it's helped, mm -hmm. and then I remember hearing that we'd shifted and put so much on the intelligence of, in the technology and not human intelligence. Has that swayed back any? Is there a better balance today? 
I think there's a maybe there's a there's a slight imbalance now. I mean, just pick up any news article about the threat of of cyber the cyber hacking and cyber warfare. Um, it's all encompassing. Um, but I think that the new director John Brennan uh, has publicly stated that he wants to try to get back, try to get the pendulum back. There's nothing like human human intelligence. Well, you can listen to all the radio signals, SIGINT or ELINT. You can take all the pictures you want on cameras of uh, IMINT. Uh, you can do all sorts of measurements downstream from a nuclear reactor, MAZINT. But nothing beats human. Nothing tells you the plans and intentions of toadstools like Kim Jong-un uh, unless you have that, that human source. And to get those human sources, you need a workforce that is culturally adept, is fluent in languages, and understands the basic elements of the second oldest profession. So someone who's really, really fast with their thumbs, like my 21-year-old daughter, and can, can text 500 words a minute, uh, better learn in her life how to talk, talk to people and how to read eyes and how to read. Yeah. Yes, sir. One agent, one agent, I guess from Iraq, that was uh, saying that, that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. And is that true, or were there were there more reasons to believe that there were ma weapons, or what's the situation there? This is the the, the weapons of mass the WMD controversy, uh, the, previous to the invasions of Iraq. There are actually two, two parts of that story. The intelligence community, both the, the agency and also some military intelligence, DIA and DH, um, were, were keeping very close book on what Saddam was developing. We all seen the horrible pictures of the gas bodies in Kurdistan. Um, that's chemical weapons. That's WMD. He had those. Uh, we absolutely knew he, was, he had BL4 labs, biological level 4 labs with negative pressure so all those microbes couldn't get out. We knew for a fact that he, he's, uh, his sons, what were their names, Udall and the, yeah. Uh, we, knew for, we knew for certain that they were out buying the kinds of marriaging steel and, and aluminum piping that uh, was required for a centrifuge cascade. And don't forget, the Israelis bombed the, what was it, the Osirak uh, reactor in, in the 80s in Iraq. Iraq had a, a reactor going. Okay, so evidence. WMD, how long do you want to wait? How long will it be before they have it? Now shift channels to any administration who perhaps is looking for an excuse hard or less hard, soft, to do something that they want to do, i.e. make the invasion. I'm not saying it was a wrong uh, conclusion, but when politicians start using intelligence um, to satisfy their, sort of to, to address their own equities, then you sometimes have less than happy results. How about over here? So since we brought up the Chinese uh, graduate students, I'm wondering uh, who's responsible for attempting to recruit them while they're here? And, and does the CIA take the lead on that, or is it the FBI? Or 
what are the legal ramifications uh, uh, for recruiting agents here in the United States? If it's if it's for um, in, intelligence uh, intelligence reasons, then the agency and the FBI can do it uh, in concert jointly. And if it is law enforcement or money laundering or narco something or um, you know, even regular counterterrorism, the FBI takes the lead with other other agencies such as DEA or ATF or CBP. Uh, the agency can only sort of pursue intelligence-related targets um, in partnership with the, uh, the FBI here in the United States. Way in the back. How badly was uh, our ability to turn agents diminished by the fact that Petraeus, the whole Petraeus scandal, if at all? Uh, it's, it's, it's usually sort of fun to see that um, Amer American scandals involving uh, high officials who have had dalliances, uh, how they, they scandalize us here in the United States. But um, I remember during, uh, during uh, Bill Clinton's uh, uh, sort of experiences, a lot, of <laughs> a lot of foreigners came up and said, high five, that guy's, wow, a stallion is fantastic. <laughs> Don't forget, people like French President Mitterrand had a love child, it had a mistress and a love child, and was out and this and that. So, the, the non-smarmy answer to your question is that I, I don't think that um, somebody who is contemplating spying for the United States to provide us intelligence will be looking at uh, General Petraeus and saying, uh, this, "This is a team that's you know sort of third third rank." That that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, how do you find like the agents? Do they come to you, or do you actively pursue them? And if you actively pursue them, how do you know that they technically want to be pursued? That's part of that recruitment cycle that I was describing. Spot, assess, develop, and recruit. The spotting means you go out seven nights a week, six nights a week to National Day events, to museum openings, to World Affair. No. <laughs> To, to try to find likely likely people, uh, and uh, in the diplomatic circle, you know, you you, you see that see the two Iranians with beards and, and the white collared shirt buttoned in the corner and not talking to anybody. You see the the North Korean general with the mortar boards and thousands of medals, and you sort of try to go over there. Uh, but you also can meet, for instance, the host country diplomat or the or the government official, and. So you spot, and you go out, and you constantly, constantly, constantly go out. And then you assess, does that person, does he or she have access to secrets that Washington needs? And then you start developmental, then you start the romance. And this thing can last six months, 12 months, 18 months. Sometimes a case officer works on somebody, leaves post, turns the developmental over to his successor, who leaves post, and seven years later, you recruit a guy. It's a constant, never-ending uh, process. Sir. Yeah, who do you consider to be the best foreign spy agency against us in the United States, and how pervasive are they? Well, um, 
all intelligence services have their sort of their, their characteristics and the peculiarities. Uh, Mossad is absolutely fantastic in it, in its back backyard, especially in, in Syria and Iran and things. They're they're excellent, excellent. Are they a world service with real world reach? Not not really. The Brits are very small, but very very talented and very very cerebral. Um, we've always been accused of being, you know, big muscular Americans who throw money at things and, and try to solve everything with technology. The Russians were, you know, the chess masters. They were, they were, um, they were diabolical. They really lived in the wilderness of mirrors. Uh, they've, they've dropped off. The Eastern Europeans were absolutely fantastic. Uh, so during the Cold War, the Russians, I, I think, and the Eastern Europeans were the biggest threats. Today, well, the new Cold War, uh, espionage is taking on a totally, totally different kind of, um, of face. Now, the Gazprom representative who goes to a conference here in Dallas or in Houston might have in his entourage a couple of KGB intelligence or SVR officers. Um, so it's a lot different. The, the 10 Russian illegals who were expelled from New York three years ago, it's a, it's a very old technique but they're still using it. Um, counterintelligence threats come from e everywhere. I think if you had to say the, the top two or three national security threats to the United States, I would say um, short term is the Iranian nuclear program, number one. And midterm is perhaps American energy independence as a way of protecting ourselves. Um, and that's parentheses, that's Russia and, and, uh, and all the Arctic exploration and all that. And then longer, longer term, I think you have to put China in there as, as, as the 20-year threat. Yeah. And on that, I think we'll have to end it. Jason, thank you very much. <laughs> you, For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.